Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This episode, titled Urban Legends 3, combines all our categories and is backed by popular demand. We have a great bunch of stories for you today. Our first urban legend, Jimmy Hoffa, is buried in the old giant stadium. When Teamsters Union boss Jimmy Hoffa disappeared without a trace from a Michigan parking lot in July of 1975, rumors about what could have happened to him immediately surfaced. Hoffa legends abound, including one that describes his body being dumped in a Florida swamp and another that has him interred in a Vegas strip club. In 1989, this interesting story ran in the Detroit Free Press after Donald, Tony the Greek, Franco's, came clean, that's in quotes, on Hoffa's disappearance and alleged murder. A convicted underworld hitman's claim that former Teamsters boss Jimmy Hoffa's remains are buried in New Jersey's giant stadium was blitzed Wednesday by Hoffa's daughter and law enforcement officials. Charles Chucky O'Brien, who was reared by Hoffa, branded as ludicrous allegations by Tony the Greek Francos in a November Playboy magazine interview that O'Brien lured Hoffa to his death. I don't know this guy, but if he's a federal witness, he'd fall on his mother to get out of prison, O'Brien, 56, said Wednesday. Hoffa's daughter, Barbara Cranser, called Franco's the scum of the earth and said his story is full of holes. What's really hard to believe is that he's in the federal witness protection program being protected by the government by taxpayers, she said. The Franco scenario is the latest in a long line of claims about the Hoffa disappearance. Franco's story includes figures previously mentioned in connection with the case, O'Brien, Tony Brovenzano, Salvatore Bruguglio, as well as some other names. In the interview, Franco says he told the FBI in 1986 that the former Teamsters boss was shot to death in a Mount Clemens home by alleged New York Irish mob boss Jimmy Coonan. Franco said Coonan and another person involved in the shooting told him about it. Coonan shot Hoffa with a silenced 22 caliber pistol, Franco's told the magazine. Coonan, aided by John Sullivan, another alleged New York mob hitman, dismembered Hoffa with a power saw and meat cleaver, bagged the body parts, and stuffed them into a freezer. Five months later, Franco says, the bags were trucked to the giant stadium construction site in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Hoffa's remains were buried in cement under what is now Section 107 near the football field's end zone, Franco's told the magazine. The magazine printed a stadium diagram marking the spot with the headline, Hoffa Goes Deep. Frankos was in a federal witness protection program and was to testify in the upcoming trial of reputed New York Mafia kingpin at the time of that writing. Kenneth Walton, who was transferred from the New York FBI office to Detroit in 1985, challenged Franco's story. During the time I was in charge, which includes the period when this guy claims he talked to an FBI agent about the case, no information came to our attention dealing with the Hoffa matter that had any credibility whatsoever, Walton said. In Playboy, Franco's claims O'Brien was paid $1 million to lure the former labor leader to a house in Mount Clemens on July 30, 1975. Hoffa was in the front seat. Sally Bugs, the alias of New Jersey mobster Berguglio, was doing the driving, and the kid, O'Brien, was in the back because Hoffa wouldn't trust nobody in the back, only O'Brien, Franco's told Playboy. Hoffa knows about getting hit in the back of the head. O'Brien, noting that federal investigators always had believed that he was driving the car, called Franco's story ludicrous. For 14 years, people have said, I drove the car, now I'm in the back seat, said O'Brien, an international representative for the Teamsters. James P. Hoffa, son of the late union leader, could not be reached for comment. 
Franco's told Playboy that Anthony Provenzano, a New Jersey union leader and reputed mafia figure, ordered Hoffa killed. The reason, Franco said, was that Hoffa had threatened to expose ties between the Teamsters and organized crime in order to regain control of the nation's largest union after his release from federal prison in Lewisburg, PA. He was incarcerated for mail fraud and jury tampering. Franco said Provenzano also had ordered the hit because Hoffa had punched Provenzano during an argument when both were inmates at Lewisburg. Provenzano died earlier this year. Kooten, at this writing, was sentenced last year to 75 years in prison after being convicted of nine murders, kidnapping, loan sharking, drug dealing, insurance fraud, and counterfeiting. Franco said Coonan's accomplice, Sullivan, is the only one out there today who is an actual killer. Barbara Crancer said she doesn't believe Franco's claims, but said she hopes the FBI still will investigate the allegations about her father. John Anthony, a spokesman for the Detroit FBI office, said, We're not able to make any comment until we've had an opportunity to review the article. Justin Dentino, chief of organized crime and intelligence for the State Commission of Investigations in New Jersey, said Franco's story is possible, but it's improbable. I think the onus here is on the FBI, if they take it serious enough, to start digging up the Meadowlands. Giant Stadium is part of the Meadowlands sports complex. O'Brien had a similar reaction. They ought to dig up the stadium so he can be laid to rest next to his wife, he said. And this from Discovery.com's Mythbusters. After this admission of guilt, again in quotes, Jamie Heineman and Adam Savage from Discovery.com's Mythbusters investigated the Hoffa hypothesis nearest and dearest to residents of Newark, New Jersey, which suggests that the body was laid to rest beneath Giant Stadium. An unexplained bump on the 10-yard line has further fueled the Hoffa folklore. To see underground, the Mythbusters probed around with ground-penetrating radar, which can detect changes in soil properties and cavities. However, a thorough scan of the stadium, including that baffling bump, turned up no subterranean abnormalities. The only thing the Mythbusters could lay to rest was the busted giant stadium myth. For now, Jimmy Hoffa's remains are still at large. But, and this is a big but, did they look in the right places in the stadium? Urban legend number two. Ever find yourself sitting on the throne and wondering when the next alligator will be rising up to plant a bite on your butt? Apparently, that's just one of the things that keeps New Yorkers stressed, which may be why you rarely get a friendly smile on those gray sidewalks of the Big Apple. For years, New Yorkers just laughed this off as Manhattan's oldest urban legend, until February 10, 1935, when the then-respectable New York Times printed this story. Alligator found in uptown sewer, boys shoveling snow into a manhole see the animal churning in icy water. As it turned out, the boys were soon joined by others, and they were able to snare a seven-foot alligator. Just three years earlier, swarms of alligators had been spotted in the Bronx River, and on March 7, 1935, a three-footer was caught in northern Yonkers. Soon they sent a sewer inspector down, and he was amazed to find large numbers of them in the city's sewers. The inspectors went down with 22 rifles and killed as many as they could. Alligators, as we all know, need a warm climate to survive, and they require lots of meaty food. Actually, sewer systems don't freeze up, and there's a constant supply of rats to keep those gators fed. So, why not? Start digging and you'll find newspaper articles going back as far as 1883. Here's one from the Atlantic Constitution. Headline, The New Sensation, Alligator in the Heart of the City, Great Commotion. 
Although Atlanta is situated about 1,100 feet above sea level and has neither the climate of Florida or the waters of the Nile, yet today she is convulsed from senator's circumference by the fact that a live alligator is circulating around in the very heart of the city. It is said to float at ease in the sewer running from the American Hotel down by the residence of Postmaster Denning. At night, it is said his deep bass voice can be heard making the welkin ring, and little city children shake with terror, for every now and then, if one gets out of sight, it is generally believed that his alligator ship has had a good meal. Like the sea serpent, the length of his alligator ship is variously stated from 6 to 10 feet. That such a dreadful monster should make his incursions into the heart of a city like Atlanta is passing strange. How it came there and how it exists is a conundrum we can't now answer. It is supposed he escaped a museum. But until the animal is captured and brought before the recorder for trial for high crimes and misdemeanors, we would advise parents to keep children away from the branch and married men to stay home at nights. Although we tend to believe that these alligators people have been finding were originally purchased as babies at tourist stands dotting the Florida highways, then brought home and summarily flushed down the toilet, it is possible that craft sewer department heads like these guys in Erie, Pennsylvania, might have imported them as clogbusters. Got a sewer clog? Who are you going to call? This from the Evening Observer, Dunkirk, New York, March 2, 1915. Rather remarkable suggestion for cleaning sewers at Erie. The Erie Dispatch is responsible for this headline. This is interesting. Rather remarkable suggestion for cleaning sewers at Erie. Alligators may be used to clean out city sewers as the result of an offer received by Theodore Eichhorn, superintendent of streets, yesterday. A New York company wrote to him asking that the innovation be tried out here, as it is to be in Dayton, Ohio. The company has agents in Florida who select sewer-sized alligators and ship them to the cities that need them. The idea is to start an alligator through the sewer head first. Being in the position a little too complicated to turn around, the animal will crawl until he reaches a manhole. A rope is to be tied around the alligator's body. As he moves, he will drag a scraper. Superintendent Eichhorn wasn't certain yesterday which of the street department force he would employ to handling the alligator if he gets one. But he did agree that the idea is a practical one because an alligator has the strength and determination to push his way through any clog that ever blocked a sewer. I'm going to take the matter up, and if they don't change too much for him, we may get an alligator, he said. When the animal becomes too old to work his way through life and sewers alike, it was suggested that he be placed as the first installment in a municipal zoological garden. The verdict to alligators in the sewers. You bet. Our next urban legend is called Guardian Angels. I am particularly interested in this one because, <clears throat> well, I, I believe they exist. My thinking, based on life experience, is that they manifest themselves in a number of ways, and they come at times of stress, trouble, or potential calamity, but rarely when you wish for them. It's almost as if they are aware that something in your life may take a wrong turn, or has taken a wrong turn, and they try to warn or help through premonition. In the rare experiences I have had, I didn't pray or wish for them. They just came in the form of premonitions, and they were right. Here are some typical accounts of people's experiences with guardian angels. Most of the currently popular angel stories are personal narratives. Among these are tales of mysterious stranger angels, ordinary-looking people who appear suddenly when they're needed and disappear just as suddenly when their job is done. This genre includes the roadside rescue story, which one source admits happens so often it's almost a cliché in angel lore. 
Essentially, in the roadside rescue, the mysterious stranger arrives to help the motorist stranded on a lonely road at night, or who is injured in an accident in an isolated spot, or human beings arrive just in the nick of time. One such testimonial has come from Jane M. Howard, an angel channeler and author. One night, the gas pedal in Jane's car became stuck, and she ran off the freeway near Baltimore. She stopped the car by throwing the transmission into park. It wouldn't restart, and she began to panic. It was 10 p.m., and she was miles from the nearest exit. She prayed to the angels for help, and within minutes, a van pulled up, carrying a man and a woman. The woman rolled down her window and told Janie not to be frightened, for they were Christians. Even so, many people would have been wary of strangers at night. But the angels gave Janie assurances, and she accepted a ride to the gas station. She discovered that the couple lived in a town near hers and knew her family. They pulled off to help Janie, they said, because they had a daughter, and they hoped that if their daughter ever was in distress, she too would be aided. Notwithstanding such mundane occurrences, often the intervention is described so as to leave little doubt that it must have been a supernatural event. Then there are bedside angelic encounters, such as a story told by a Louisville woman in Burnham's A Book of Angels. One of the woman's good friends had died, but seemed to linger as a presence. Moreover, she says, Twice I've awakened from sleep to see something mystical. I sat up in bed to convince myself I wasn't dreaming. To the right of me, hovering about five feet from the floor, was a bright mass of energy, a yellow and orange ball about six inches in diameter. I closed my eyes and reopened them. I even pinched myself to make sure I was really seeing what was before my eyes, and there it remained until I fell asleep again. I was frightened. About a year later, the same thing happened under the same circumstances. However, this time I asked questions subconsciously, and they were answered. They were all in reference to my friend who had left this world, and the overall summation was, I was not to fear or worry, because I was being watched over. His protection, caring, and love were continuing, though his physical being was gone. Any of you out there who have had similar experiences, check in with us at facebook.com slash 1001heroes. I'd love to hear about it. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Our next story, number four, Mudhouse Mansion in Lancaster, Ohio. Mudhouse Mansion is a house located in Lancaster, Ohio that is rumored to be haunted. The house has not been officially occupied since the 1930s, although it is suspected that transients have lived in the space since that time. As is the case with many abandoned properties, there is a great deal of folklore attached to the old house. Residents who live in and around the area will already be familiar with the urban legends that surround the famed mansion, and despite the fact that the owners of the property have stated that they will prosecute trespassers harshly, Mudhouse Mansion remains a popular location for legend tripping, where people go to a supposedly haunted place as a rite of passage to test their courage. Mudhouse Mansion was built in the mid-1800s, and around 1920, the house was sold to the Hartman family. In 1930, the then patriarch of the family died, and although descendants of the Hartman family maintain ownership of the land today, the house itself has been more or less abandoned for the last 80 years. 
One of the most popular folk stories linked to the abandoned house concerns an extremely cruel slave owner who lived in the house after the Civil War. The slave owner in question apparently treated his slaves like dirt. His cruelty was apparently considered brutal even in an environment where slaves were considered less than human. The slaves were also often locked overnight in the outhouses rather than being allowed to stay in the relative comfort of the main manor. One of the slaves got sick of the intolerably cruel treatment that he and his fellows were receiving, and he decided to take revenge. Night by night, he began digging a tunnel from the outhouse towards the main manor, and eventually he finished the tunnel. On one ominous night, he made his way from the outhouse through the tunnel and into the mansion. Once inside the mansion, he slaughtered the slave owner along with the entire family that lived in the house. Legend has it that the family remains in the house, haunting it to this day. The story actually continues from there. Locals who live around the area tell the tale of a family who eventually ended up buying the house around the turn of the 19th century. Neighbors at the time saw the family moving in, unloading furniture and moving belongings into the house. Then, something unusual happened. The newly moved in family simply disappeared. Neighbors never saw or heard from them again. At first, people thought that the family was just spending all of their time indoors. But as time passed and no sign was seen of the family, rumors began to spread. One neighbor claimed to see a woman dressed in white, unmoving, just staring out the window on the second floor. Each time the neighbor took a glance, the woman was there, just staring. After a few more days, the neighbors decided to call the police, and upon arrival, the police were met with a grisly sight. The family of five that had moved in just a few days prior, well, they were in the house, but all five of them were hanging from the ceiling dressed in white. The woman that the neighbor had been seeing, she wasn't standing at the window. She was hanging from the ceiling. After this unfortunate incident, the house was abandoned, and nobody has lived at Mudhouse Mansion since. To this day, there are reports of strange or unnatural things happening in and around that house. A number of people claim to have heard strange sounds emanating from the house, and those who have been brave enough to actually venture into the house have found it empty, despite hearing unsettling noises in and around the premises. Next, our number five, a Craigslist gold digger meets her match. This appeared on Craigslist. What am I doing wrong? Okay, I'm tired of beating around the bush. I'm a beautiful, spectacularly beautiful, 25-year-old girl. I'm articulate and classy. I'm not from New York. I'm looking to get married to a guy who makes at least half a million a year. I know how that sounds, but keep in mind that a million a year is middle class in New York, so I don't think I'm overreaching at all. Are there any guys who make 500 k or more on this board? Any wives? Can you send me some tips? I dated a businessman who makes average around 100 to 150, but that's where I seem to hit a roadblock. 150000 won't give me to Central Park West. I know a woman in my yoga class who is married to an investment banker and lives in Tribeca, and she's not as pretty as I am. Nor is she a great genius. So what is she doing right? How do I get to her level? Here are my questions specifically. Where do you single rich men hang out? Give me the specifics. Bars, restaurants, gyms. What are you looking for in a mate? Be honest, guys, she says. You won't hurt my feelings. Is there an age range I should be targeting? I'm 25. Why are some of the women living lavish lifestyles on the Upper East Side so plain? I've seen really plain Jane boring types who have nothing to offer married to incredibly wealthy guys. I've seen drop-dead gorgeous girls in singles bars in the East Village. What's the story there? 
Jobs I should look out for? Everyone knows. Lawyer, investment banker, doctor. How much do those guys really make? And where do they hang out? Where do the hedge fund guys hang out? How do you decide marriage versus just a girlfriend? I am looking for marriage only. Please hold your insults. I'm putting myself out there in an honest way. Most beautiful women are superficial. At least I'm being upfront about it. I wouldn't be searching for these kind of guys if I wasn't able to match them in looks, culture, sophistication, and keeping a nice home and hearth. The answer, dear person, I read your posting with great interest and have thought meaningfully about your dilemma. I offer the following analysis of your predicament. Firstly, I'm not wasting your time. I qualify as a guy that fits your bill. That is, I make more than 500 k per year. That said, here's how I see it. Your offer, from the perspective of a guy like me, is plain and simple a crappy business deal. Here's why. Cutting through all the BS, what you suggest is a simple trade. You bring your looks to the party, and I bring my money. Fine, simple. But here's the rub. Your looks will fade, and my money will likely continue into perpetuity. In fact, it's very likely that my income increases, but it is an absolute certainty that you won't be getting any more beautiful. So, in economic terms, you're a depreciating asset, and I'm an earning asset. Not only are you a depreciating asset, your depreciation accelerates. Let me explain. You're 25 now and will likely stay pretty hot for the next five years, but less so each year. Then the fade begins in earnest. By 35, stick a fork in you. So in Wall Street terms, we would call you a trading position, not a buy and hold. Hence the rub, marriage. It doesn't make good business sense to buy you, which is what you're asking. So I'd rather lease. In case you think I'm being cruel, I would say the following. If my money were to go away, so would you. So when your beauty fades, I need an out. It's as simple as that. So a deal that makes sense is dating, not marriage. Separately, I was taught early in my career about efficient markets. So I wonder why a girl as articulate, classy, and spectacularly beautiful as you say you are has been unable to find your sugar daddy. I find it hard to believe that if you're as gorgeous as you say you are, that the 500K hasn't found you, if not only for a tryout. By the way, you could always find a way to make your own money, and then we wouldn't need to have this difficult conversation. With all that said, I must say you're going about it the right way. Classic pump and dump. I hope this is helpful, and if you want to enter into some sort of lease, let me know. R. Campbell, J.P. Morgan, Diversified Industrials Investment Banking, 277 Park Avenue, New York, New York. Urban legend number six. The Eagles song, Hotel California, is about Satanism. I'm pretty sure that there are a lot of people who, like me, have heard a couple of stanzas of this famous song without even realizing that there are urban legends that have woven themselves into the lyrics. Performed by the legendary group The Eagles, this song became popular in the 1970s, coming out on an album by the same name. Hotel California has become an icon of this era and has well-maintained popularity over the years. It was so successful that in 1977, the album won a Grammy for the Best Album of the Year. The single also topped the Billboard Hot 100 charts and the Recording Industry Association of America awarded it a gold album for having sold more than 1 million copies that year. Since its release, it has sold more than 16 million copies in the U.S. alone. For that particular song, Don Felder, Don Headley, and Glenn Fry share the credit for writing a tune that marked a generation. The controversial lyrics of Hotel California narrate the experience of a man who arrives exhausted from a long journey. It is night when he arrives to this hotel, where he catches the scent of marijuana in the air, that being the warm smell of colitas. The man is then received by a woman who offers him a bottle of wine and shows him the way by candlelight. 
Upon seeing that the woman does not return with the wine, he points it out to the captain, who replies, We haven't had that spirit here since 1969. This surreal story tells the tale that all guests are prisoners of this hotel and have no way out. The legend goes on to say that Don Henley had actually stayed at this hotel located in the town of Todos Santos, considered a Pueblo Magico, which is Magical Town, a designation given by the Mexican tourist industry to small towns of cultural value in Baja, California, between La Paz and Los Cabos, over 45 miles north of Cabo San Lucas. It was here that the inspiration for the song was born, a song that no one could have imagined would ever have been so popular. The truth of the matter is that before all of this, the real Hotel California had opened in 1932 as a simple lodging option in a two-story building, occupying the second floor, while a gas station convenience store opened on the first. The story goes that the spirit of a woman named Mercedes would appear to men, inviting them to have a glass of wine. Even though Don Henley had declared in numerous occasions that he had never been at this hotel and that the lyrics were not written in reference to ghost sightings, it does function as a metaphor for a world of drugs and excess. It is, without a doubt, one of those songs that only the author would really have known what it all meant. Don Henley called it our interpretation of high life in Los Angeles and later reiterated, it's basically a song about the dark underbelly of the American dream and about excess in America, which is something we knew a lot about. In 2008, Don Felter described the origin of the lyrics. Don Henley and Glenn wrote most of the words. All of us kind of drove into L.A. at night. Nobody was from California. And if you drive into L.A. at night, you can just see this glow on the horizon of lights and the images that start running through your head of Hollywood and all the dreams that you have. And so it was kind of about that, what we started writing the song about. Coming into L.A. and from that Life in the Fast Lane came out of that, and Wasted Time, and a bunch of other songs. Our urban legend number seven, an Irish ghost story. This story happened a while ago in Dublin, and even though it sounds like an Alfred Hitchcock tale, it's true. John Bradford, a Dublin University student, was on the side of the road hitchhiking on a very dark night, and in the midst of a big storm. The night was rolling on, and no car went by. The storm was so strong he could hardly see a few feet ahead of him. Suddenly he saw a car slowly coming towards him and stopped. John, desperate for shelter and without thinking about it, got into the car and closed the door, only to realize there was nobody behind the wheel and the engine wasn't on. The car started moving slowly. John looked at the road ahead and saw a curve approaching. Scared, he started to pray, begging for his life. Then, just as the car hit the curve, a hand appeared out of nowhere through the window and turned the wheel. John, paralyzed with terror, watched as the hand came through the window, but it never touched or harmed him. Shortly thereafter, John saw the lights of a pub appear down the road, so, gathering strength, he jumped out of the car and ran toward the pub. Wet and out of breath, he rushed inside and started telling everybody about the horrible experience he had just had. A silence enveloped the pub when everybody realized he was crying, and he wasn't drunk. Suddenly the door opened, and two other people walked in from the dark and stormy night, they, like John, were also soaked and out of breath. Looking around and seeing John Bradford sobbing at the bar, one said to the other, Look, Patty, there's that idiot that got in the car while we were pushing it. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. You can catch all our episodes at 1001storiespodcast.com and join in on the conversation at facebook.com forward slash 1001 heroes until next time this is your host and storyteller john hagedorn and this 
is our story.